This morning, we are continuing a little short series on Epiphany, which comes after Christmas, where we celebrate, ah, Christ has come into this world, which is really great because Advent's about waiting, you know, for, for God to come. And then Epiphany is, what is this Christ who we've been waiting for, who's come to us, what is he like? Uh, an epiphany, it's just like what you think of, aha, I had an epiphany. All things are clear to me now. I, I now get it. I now have a proper view. That's what this church history season is all about. Today, we're going to be looking at the final sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John, where Lazarus rises from the dead, where Jesus raises him from the dead. Next Sunday, we'll have Austin preaching. Yeah, and I can't wait for that. He will be the last preacher of this last round of cohort trainers, or people that we've been training to preach, and so really excited for Austin to preach next week on the Gospel of John as well. So today, Lazarus rising from the dead. Actually, I want to start by talking about my hometown, my home city, which is Lisbon, Portugal. Over 250 years ago, on All Saints' Eve in America, known as Halloween, there was this massive earthquake in the city. There are people, historians, that even talk about this earthquake as changing the trajectory of the Western world. This earthquake was, which shook everything to the very core. The world cracked open. It swallowed people. It broke and shook everything. And then the gas lamps that were lighting the streets and the candles, because it was All Saints Eve, people were in church and they had all these candles. It started a massive fire. The whole city was burning. But good news, a tidal wave came and took away the whole fire. And the world, it seemed, literally swallowed up this nation in a matter of hours. It was, it's horrific. And I grew up walking these streets, and you can tell where the earthquake happened. There are still church buildings that are charred on the side from the fires. The Portuguese people, just to brag on them, you know, they gave, they gave their an empire, a dirty, terrible, colonializing empire, but they gave a lot of their treasures to the church. They gave money to the church. Several of the popes that we've had throughout the history of the Catholic Church, they were all, many of them were Portuguese. A whole missionary societies like the Jesuits or anybody ever watched the movie Silence, all of those priests are Portuguese. Like, that's a pretty good thing, right? They, they were good. They were, in fact, you know, worshiping Jesus at the very moment that all of this stuff happened. They had conquered half of the world. They, were, they kind of split the world in half with a pope. That was very controversial. Still is kind of controversial and odd. They took their half and Spain took another half. They paraded their treasures from all over the world. They walked them down the streets. I mean, they had accounted for everything, and they had all of these treasures. They had wonderful plans. And then the world kind of broke. But more than that, it shook all of Europe. Does someone want to just shut the door back over there? Sorry. Off. Thanks, Daryl. So I think they're blowing some leaves, which is great. They should pick up the trash. Anyway... <laughs> It was such a foundational thing because the Europeans looked and they said, if this could happen to these people who have done all of these great things, on a day in which they're worshiping God, what could happen to us? In fact, almost all of Voltaire, the French philosopher, writer, almost all of his famous writings, the ones that we pretend to read, and I'm one of them, I pretended to read in college, all of those famous writings are in response to this event. 
and how people responded to it. The best thinkers, the theologians, politicians, poets, even technicians and merchants, they all tried to make sense of disaster because they they were doing the right things, they had a plan, they had wealth, and if this kind of thing can happen to the wealthy, the good, the righteous, the kind, what's the point of doing anything at all? So they had to come up with reasons for what that was, and the reason historians say this changed the whole Western world is because the majority response was, it isn't worth it. This is all just a joke. And that was kind of the beginning of what is the point of doing what's good and what's right? Maybe there is no good and no right. Maybe there isn't. If there is a God, he doesn't care about us. The point of all of that was for them to think through, what do you do when things get destroyed? What's the point when the life that you've built vanishes? You know, what would you hope in now? It changed Portugal forever. Portugal was never, ever again the empire and the dominant force that it was before that. They had to spend everything they had to rebuild the city. And by the way, it's very pretty, as Instagram attests. But I would say that French philosophers are great, but I think Mike Tyson kind of sums up this whole thing a lot better, the boxer. Uh, Truman asked me, who's Mike Tyson? (laughs) He's a boxer. And he said this famously. He said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth right? That's the whole reality. Everyone has a plan. He's talking about boxing until they are punched in the mouth. What do you do? What is, like you all have plans for your lives. You have imaginations of what your life will be like. And, and what do you do when those plans go off the rail? What's your plan? Uh, what do you do in the face of pain and suffering and grief and chaos and uncertainty or just old fashioned change? that just happens. What do you do? The thing is, what I would say is, what you do after you get punched in the mouth is what you hope in. That thing that you go to, that you look to, your response to being punched in the mouth is for you. It's like a mirror reflecting back to you. This is what you hope in. And we're Christians, right? A lot of us. Surely the answer is Jesus. That's what, you know, we get punched in the mouth, the earthquakes come, everything is destroyed. Jesus must be the answer. But how? How is Jesus the answer? How is he hope? Or as the apostle Peter says in his first epistle, how is Jesus a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? How is he an inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades? How is Jesus a, a hope for us? when it actually seems like our inheritance, our future, our friendships, our health seem to be perishing and spoiling and fading. I think the story of Lazarus answers a lot of that. I think it it points to the reality of, of hope and how Jesus can somehow be the answer to what happens after we get punched in the mouth. I think it's really through his... Lazarus doesn't do much in the story. It's really through the other people, their responses, their, their conversations with Jesus that we kind of learn how he is hope. And so I want us to read this passage. It's, it's a bit of a passage. I kept adding verses to it. So just enjoy the story for a moment. This is John chapter 11. It says, Now there was a man named Lazarus who was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his, her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. 
So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, yet you are going to go back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see the world, they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Then his disciples said, oh yeah, that makes tons of sense. <laughs> Verse 11, sorry. Verse 11 says this, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant of natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. And then Thomas, who was also known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, talking about Jesus. And then on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus was already, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last days. And Jesus said to her, no, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who came, to, came into this world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come alongside her also were weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who had opened the eyes of the blind man kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across its entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, said Martha and the sister of the dead man, by this time there will be a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stones. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you 
that you have heard me. I knew that you would always hear me. And I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with straps of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is God's word. Wonderful story. Crazy story. The, the background of this, I think, is really important. Jesus had friends. Jesus had people that he liked, had people that he loved, so much so that other people could just describe them as, you know, the one that you love is sick. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are some of his favorite friends. Another little thing that's really important to know is Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the real city, you know, Zion. It gets talked about all the time. Little side note, suburbs are okay. <laughs> Jesus loves people who live in suburbs. And what had happened is Jesus was far away teaching, and then he finds out that Lazarus is sick because they send word. And then Jesus, sometimes we think, ah, he must be a little, uh, you know, doesn't care, a little apathetic towards Lazarus's cause. But actually, the language here is more of he cuts his whole trip short. Like he was supposed to be in this village teaching about the kingdom of God and how to find life and how, what sin is all about. He was supposed to continue teaching that, but instead he cuts it short because he is so moved. So when he hears it, he stays because he cares, but he goes back even quicker. And it's pretty dark in the beginning. It's a pretty dark story. In fact, the, the author, John, continues to take Lazarus and he takes him, if you notice the language, he goes from the one that Jesus loved to then just a name, Lazarus, to at the end, the dead man. It's a pretty dark progression. The darkness kind of grows. The other kind of background besides Jesus loving suburbs and having friends is that he had created quite a bit of conflict. In all of his teaching and all of his doing and all of his miracles, there were people who did not like him. And there were lots of them. They were around Jerusalem, they were around Bethany, they were in this area. And so what he, whenever he says, let's go back and let's go to where Lazarus is, Thomas, the same one that says, you know, let me put my fingers in your wounds, that's when I will believe. I talked about this at Easter last year. He gets a bad rap because we think he's doubting Thomas. But here he is giving this really intense respond. If Jesus is gonna go, Let's go there and die with him. The expectation was that all of the disciples would go to Judea and they would be stoned to death while mourning their friend Lazarus. So what's happened at this point is that Jesus has these people that he loves deeply, has this intense connection with. He's had countless parties in their home and he's like, he knows and he understands that this friend that he has has died. That's a dark moment, right? Also, he understands to go there and to be there and to mourn will also mean like his death and his friend's death. And like, this is a dark, dark moment, right? Y'all agree? Pretty, pretty depressing even. That even the way that technology works is by the time that he found out that he was sick, he was already dead. By the time he got there, he had been dead for four days. That is, that's pretty intense, right? And I think we might look at this and look at the totality of the story and say, okay, the way hope works is the days get darker and darker, moments get really, really dark, but they're gonna be turned around. You know, there can be optimism in the trial, optimism in the darkness. 
that things get really, really dark, but that's when the good stuff happens. You know, sometimes Christians get called morbid uh, and obsessed with darkness instead of being obsessed with light, which I think is part of Jesus' confusing teaching there. But he said, but maybe we think, okay, the darkness is okay, that's part of life. We might even get a rush living on the edge. Kind of reminds me of uh, these bad moments in human history, like the film Darkest Hour. It's about Winston Churchill. It's about a real-life event. That moment, if anyone's seen that movie, it's great. I think it got an Oscar for Best Actor, maybe. Some people nodding. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, it's a very dark, dark movie because what's happening is England is understanding that they're going to be conquered by Hitler and the Nazis. And they, they've lost all of their allies. Their allies are folding like crazy. They haven't been set up or prepared for war. Things are getting more and more bleak. Every night they get bombed like horrendously over and over again. It's very bleak. And they have a small group of their entire military, all of their soldiers, their regiments are there on the coast of France, and they don't have enough boats to get them across the English Channel. And what's going to, as you know, Hitler's army and tanks are surrounding them, and they're going to get wiped out in a few days' time, and there will be no more British army, and there will be no more Britain. Like, bleak, right? So, so scary. They're going to they're rain down bombs on them. And then on May 13th, while that was happening, you know, Churchill comes and he declares in Parliament, it's a really great speech. He says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. That's what he said. This is a dark moment. This is, the title of this speech is Toil, Tears, and Sweat. Churchill, great speech writer, bad speech titler. <laughs> He continued on in his speech, though. He says, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all of our might, with all of our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny. You ask us, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. What a speech. In this dark hour, we're at the pit. Don't worry. We're going to fight hard and get through it. What happened next, though, is they, uh, they had this incredible evacuation. They employed all of these boat Anybody who had a boat on the English side sailed across the channel to this town called Dunkirk, and they got all of the soldiers in, and they went across. They also employed the entire nation to pray fervently. It's actually, it marked an entire generation of people. Even like the, the, the recently deceased queen, it like marked her faith really significantly because an entire nation prayed for God to somehow miraculously save their entire army. And what happened was a fog came down and descended for days so that all of these boats could go back and forth on the English Channel, and every soldier was saved, all 338,000 of them. Incredible. It became known as the miracle of Dunkirk. Uh, they really mistitled that movie a little later, but there is one, uh, there is one by that title. And so we might think, well, fighting to the end and striving and trying, just like Churchill described, that's hope. Like That's what it is, even in the darkest hour. So maybe that's what hope is, you know, Churchill, victory, victory. Uh, or maybe a more modern example is Jack White of the White Stripes of many, many bands. 
kind of a loner now, but he's an incredible guitar player. Uh, there was this documentary that was called This Might Get Loud. It's fantastic. It's on some streaming service, I'm sure. You should watch it. But in that, he tells Dave Evans, who's the edge from U2, he tells him, you have to have pain when he's talking about his art of playing guitar. You have to bleed. You have to feel it. Through the furnace of opposition and trial, you're made stronger. He says, art needs pain, which I think is funny, like from the guy who wrote, dum, 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 dum. you know, anyway, art needs pain. That's what he says. And we might think that that's like the result of suffering. When we get punched in the mouth, we need that. We need the darkest hour. That's how we change. You know, like I was really arrogant and prideful, but then I suffered and now I'm more humble. Or I lost all my money, but it's good because I'm more generous and kind and thankful now. There was a character transformation. I went through war, and now I know what's truly important. Uh, we might think my spouse, my spouse got sick, and the agony of it all caused me to cry out to God once and finally. And the Bible even speaks about this too, about perseverance through faith. Perseverance produces character. Pain will somehow be used for good. Almost every writer of the New Testament talks about trials, purifying us, trials working with inside of us. And so we might think that's what the hope of Jesus is after we get punched in the mouth. There's these dark hours, but we like get through it. It, comes, it seems like it's going to come to an end, but just when things are dark, something good is going to happen. My heart will be transformed. There'll be all of this good stuff on the other end. That would be my hope. But it's not the case here, because what happens is Jesus tells his disciples, our friend has fallen asleep. They're like, oh, that's good. He's going to get better. He should get some rest. Then he says, no, no, he's dead. Nothing really redeemed, not like a really great moment. And for every Dunkirk moment, there was also this other town called Casse, which is where a whole brigade of soldiers of the British army fought as a decoy, and all of them were killed, like thousands of them killed as a decoy. Or for every Winston Churchill speech during World War II, there was also a speech by a king in Poland and by a, a leader in Holland saying, we will resist to the very end, and they were taken over. Sometimes really bad stuff happens, and there isn't a balancing of the scales character transformation thing. Bad stuff happens, and there isn't a, oh, but we came out of it on the other side. Or everything gets, you know, the Death Star gets destroyed and we're all happy again. While we might see character transformation through suffering, through persevering through really hard times, and that is a really good thing, and your heart might grow into maturity, you might even know God better. I'm just going to say that's not enough hope. That isn't enough. It's great, but it won't be enough when you get punched in the mouth. So the story goes on. Uh, Jesus comes to the village. He sees his friend. They talk on the road. Then they, they go and get the other sister, and then they go towards the tomb. And all of these people, because the thing about suburbs is their houses are bigger, and this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, threw huge, lavish parties. There were prominent people. All of these people from the city were out there to mourn. They were popular. They were well-liked. They were well-loved. Like, Jesus wasn't Lazarus' only friend, right? So there's all these people out there, and they go to the tomb, and they weep, and they cry, and they mourn. He's been dead for four days, but they cry, and they lament. And even Jesus, 
weeps, and is sad. It says multiple times he's been, he gets moved, even more moved, even more moved. His heart is like crushed. Michael Card, musician, now writes a book. He's, he talks about lament this way and grief. Lament and grief is seeing the world as it is without rosy glasses, saying the truth about being emotionally consistent. This thing that's happening is bad, and I, and I feel it, and I know that it is bad. And here Jesus is, grieving. This is bad. This isn't good. I am like this, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He wept with his friends. He wept with the people that he loves. So much so that everyone else looks around like, oh, he really did love him. You know, like when you go to the funeral and there's the people that are the closest to that person and they can barely speak words because they're grieving. That's what Jesus is doing, like a almost like a crying kind of, kind of tear, a crying out, like a guttural, like donkey kind of howl of a tear, of a weeping. And they say, oh, he must love them. So we might conclude that the hope of Jesus, after all of this and the sorrow and the sadness and the, the destruction and chaos, we might conclude, well, Jesus will be there with us at the end. And he will weep with us. He will carry us. He will be closer to us than a brother. He will be a friend. He will grieve alongside us. Like Ben Gibbard said, Mike Tyson, Ben Gibbard, same sermon, like that's never been done. <laughs> ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie, Postal Service and his own stuff. But with Death Cab for Cutie, he said this. He says, love of mine, one day you will die. Gibbard's really, really dark person. He says, one day you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark. It's a real sweet song, especially if you went to college in the early 2000s. Okay, just, just me and a few others. Anyway, it's a really beautiful sentiment. And we might say, well, that's the Christian hope in Jesus, that he will meet you there at the end. In your darkest of days, Jesus will be there emotionally consistent, saying what's wrong, grieving alongside of you. A shoulder to cry on, a therapeutic God. Even the, the name of Jesus that we talk about during Christmas, Wonderful Counselor. Well, there he, there's Wonderful Counselor, Jesus there, counseling these people through grief. It's fantastic. And I think all of that is true, right? That he is good to be with us as we go into the dark. But someone in the crowd makes this wonderful observation. And it's an observation people have been making for centuries. Observation that Voltaire made after the earthquake in Lisbon. He says, if the guy weeping over there is the same guy that made a blind man who was blind from his birth see, why couldn't he do anything for this guy? There's always that person in the crowd who's asking that question, but why is this still happening? It's great for, for Jesus to be there therapeutically walking alongside of us. That is wonderful, good, and true, but surely there must be something more to him than just being with us when things fall apart. Because Jesus is either the greatest therapist to ever live, or he's the son of God that like raises things from the dead. And so that's what happens. This is a, an obvious statement, I think, perhaps. But it's not enough for Jesus to be with you as you go through pain, or to find yourself next to Jesus in the pit or the foxhole, it's not enough for Jesus to, you know, correctly transform your character. Humanity needs a greater hope. 
And Jesus tells Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. And she says, of course he will. I believe in that. Because Jews at this time believed that one day everybody would rise from the again. All of the Jewish people who are good and faithful, one day all together, when you know, David is on the throne again, everyone will rise again. That's what, that's what almost everyone believed. So she's like, yeah, I believe in that. And, he's, and then Jesus says, no, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. Like This is happening within me. This is what's happening. Jesus is saying that his life means an existence with God. That's who he is. And this is kind of the turning point of all resurrection is life. Jesus says, no, it's not so much what I will do. It's not so much how I will be with you. It's not so much how you might change. The whole of Christian hope is who I am. He says, I am life. I am resurrection. And those who believe in me will enjoy confidence over the power of death, and they will know him. They will receive abundant life. He's saying, I am. His identity is, I am turned back to death. Like, I'm the one who turns death back. Who am I? I am life. And these two identity claims that Jesus makes kind of sum up the entirety of the gospel, sums up everything. Jesus is saying, I am resurrection personified. This is weeks before the resurrection of himself. But he's saying, I raise dead things to life. It's who I am. He's also life embodied. You think you have life. Kind of this other claim. Who are you? You're death. Who am I? I'm life. Who are you? You're headed to a grave. Who am I? I'm resurrection. And he's saying, whoever believes in me, like you get that identity too. He's the one who brings life. Whoever gets it, gets it. Whoever believes in him, receives all of it. Hope is simply in the identity of who Christ is. When you get punched in the mouth and you think, I need to come up with a new plan, Jesus isn't saying to Martha, oh, let's come up with a new plan for your life. He's saying, no, I am who I am, which is how God always works with people. In bondage, in slavery, the people in Egypt, God goes to Moses and says, I am who I am. And you might think, but there's people in bondage. Is it really good to know who you are And God is like, no, the fundamental thing is for you to know who I am. That's the beginning of everything. And that's what Jesus makes here is this claim that he's the one that turns back the curse of sin. He destroys sin. He destroys evil. He's bringing life out of death. Resurrection is required. We need raising. If Jesus is the resurrection, he raises us from the dead. And if he raises Lazarus from the dead, he raises anyone from the dead. He raises all who believe. Death has no sting. The curse of sin is no more because he's going to walk into the grave. He's going to go to the grave and he's going to call out dead, destroyed things. So Christianity asks you to hope that all suffering will, like the cross, like the tomb, be turned into joy and life. That's the hope of Christianity. The hope of Christianity is that every sickness that you experience, every loved one on their deathbed, every loved one put into the grave, that God will turn all of that into joy and life. One day, the crushing weight of evil and death will be lifted off, and evil and dead things will be no more. Fyodor Dostoevsky describes this super well in a long speech that Ivan gives, semi-ironically, but it's a good speech for us, through this uh, brother, Ayosha, who's the monk, who like, wants, to, wants his brothers to believe. It's a great book. 
It really is. But in it, he says that, and this is in the beginning half, so you only have to get like 800 pages in to get this. <laughs> he, says, he, he says, as they're talking about these brothers, their struggle, he says, I actually believe like a child that the suffering will be healed and made up for, that the humiliating absurdity of human contradiction will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and the infinitely small Euclid mind of man, that the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentment, for the atonement of all crime, for the, all the blood that has been shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but it will justify all that has happened. That was Dostoevsky's answer to the earthquakes. That in, he believes like a child that the end of time, everything will be made so that it won't even just be okay to forgive, but that all things will be justified. This is the Christian hope based on the active work of Jesus and who he is and his identity. His identity not only to just overcome suffering and show us some sort of path to overcoming suffering. There's plenty of those worldviews. You know, they're, they're pretty good at helping you get through suffering. But Jesus and the, the claim of Christianity is not to get through suffering, but to overcome all suffering through Christ. So then how do we rebuild Lisbon? You know, how do we rebuild after the earthquake. We trust that all of this will be for good, even now that all things are being brought back to union with God and the identity of Christ, of resurrection and life. We're actually defiant towards evil because it's an aberration of what is supposed to be good. We're resilient in all of these sort of turmoil crises that we face because we know that the arc of the world is bent through Jesus, who is resurrection and life, that the whole world has to go through this lens or this tiny hole that is the resurrection and the life that is only Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller wrote it really well in his book, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering, on what do you do? How is Jesus hope? He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrows. So, most worldviews are like, just enjoy what's good now and know that everything is going to mess up for you, right? Like, yeah, Christmas was good, but did you know it's an election year kind of thing? <laughs> or, yeah, just soak up the good moments, drink the nice Mai Tai when you're on vacation, like really enjoy the good moments because we're all headed to the endless pit, like the universe is going to collapse on itself. So you're either going to be alive when that happens or you're going to be dead before it happens, right? That's what every other worldview says, but this is what's different. Christianity, though, empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's suffering, tasting the coming joy. That's the unique difference. Christianity actually has this power to sit in the world's sorrows to sit in the rubble of Lisbon and say, there is coming joy. And this is actually really sad and horrific. That God might transform our hearts through us all. God will be with us as we grieve and as we lament. But there is a coming joy and that we are going to taste it even now as we taste our own tears. So how do you get in on this hope? There's two things Jesus says. He says, you believe 
You believe. That's what he keeps going back to with, with Martha, with Mary, with the people in the crowds, with his own disciples. Believe. And the belief is unique. In verse 27, she says, yes, I believe in you. I believe you are the Christ, she says later. You're the son of God that is coming into the world. It's like he's arriving more and more and more. You believe. I believe in you. Do you believe in Jesus as the resurrection and as the life? Then the second thing that you're supposed to do, and I think this is perhaps one of the best lines Jesus says of of all the things that Jesus ever says. He says some really wonderful things, parable stories. But here in the final verse that I read in verse 44, I think he says the greatest thing. He says to them, take off the grave clothes and let them go. He says, take off the grave clothes. These are the actions that he requires. Believe and take off the clothes of the tomb, the clothes of death. Remove it, because that's not where Lazarus belongs. He doesn't belong draped in these clothes of garments of death. Also, it would have been horrifying, right? But he says, take off the grave clothes and go. Get on living, you know? Get busy enjoying the resurrection. Taste and see that he will raise things from the dead, that he will turn all sad things into good things. Not just neutral, but good, wonderful, abundant life things. Take off the the lament and embrace the joy of Christ. That's how you live in hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. We thank you for who you are. You are our living hope, uh, that you don't fade away, that you don't get defiled, that you don't get uh, drifty far and far from us. God, I pray for us as people who suffer and who are sad about many things or who are anxious about many things, who feel as though life has really destroyed us. God, I pray that you would help us take off our grave clothes, help us to grow in belief, help us to ask the questions around suffering and to pursue a knowledge and a truth and a confidence uh, in who you are and what you're doing with all of the sadness and all of the dark things. Fill us with hope, Jesus. Amen.